a read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. We have a new episode format for you today. We're a relatively new podcast, so always interested in feedback and always looking for ways to improve or keep things fresh. Yeah, you know what? We had some comments that what we were doing was not what a couple listeners expected when they tuned into a quote unquote debate podcast, or to be more specific, the debate podcast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Very Mm -hmm. presumptuous of us, which realistically is fair. Our vision is to provide the best arguments on all sides of the topics that we choose. And so far in the majority of episodes, the way that we've decided to do that has been largely collaborative between Kelly and I. Even if it doesn't always sound like we're being collaborative. (laughs) I think we're very harmonious with each other. Okay. Okay. So today though, Kelly and I are going to be at it in a bit more of a combative format. Rather than exploring both sides of this topic together, as we usually do, I'm going to be defending agricultural subsidies. And I'm going to be rejecting them because they suck. (laughs) I was going to say that in these episodes, we're not necessarily arguing for the side that we actually believe in, but apparently in this case, uh, Kelly at least is. We'll see. So before this battle, a little bit of context. We're going to be focusing on subsidies specifically in the United States and the European Union, because those are the areas we have a lot of data regarding and a lot of controversial points that we can explore. Mm -hmm. There are definitely subsidies that exist in developing nations, but I think in, in most cases, the controversial implementations happen predominantly in the United States and the European Union. A subsidy, for those of you who may not be familiar, is a government payment given to individuals, organizations, or businesses to offset costs to advance a specific public goal. In this case, to eat. Hmm. For agricultural subsidies in particular, the government seeks to protect farmers against fluctuation in prices, revenues, and yields. It subsidizes their conservation efforts, insurance coverage, marketing, export sales research, and other activities. Federal aid for crop farmers is pretty deep and pretty comprehensive. The first question that might come to mind is, why would we even do this? What makes farmers unique? Why not just allow for supply and demand to dictate all of this? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. The the first one being, if left to the free market, U.S. and EU agriculture would almost certainly fail competing against similar products in the developing world that have significantly lower production costs. Mm -hmm. Just like U.S. manufacturing, right? There is very little of it anymore because there are so many strong foreign competitors that can lower costs significantly enough that they can price us out of our own domestically produced goods. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that brings up the interesting point or or re-raises the question you just asked, which was, okay, so why do we then subsidize agriculture and not subsidize manufacturing. And I think the answer lies in what would happen if prices were allowed to be too low, if developing markets were able to dictate the price of food. And to be blunt, there'd be no incentive to provide food on behalf of 
farmers in the developed world, and we would end up with a shortage. Literally, people wouldn't eat. On the other side of the coin, quite literally, if prices are too high, then people can't afford to eat. Yeah, either way, bad. And I think people eat food more frequently than they eat copper or other manufactured goods. So don't, don't speak on my behalf. <laughs> I, I knew I know you're a vegan. Is copper vegan? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not an animal-derived product, uh, <laughs> even though it tastes like blood. <laughs> um, so <laughs> subsidies are an attempt to maintain a, a sort of equilibrium price that balances out the market, ensures that there is a food supply there, considering how important this product obviously is. Basic explanation, government just throws money at food to make sure the price stays where we need it and keep farmers happy. But that raises the question, specifically, why agriculture instead of all of these other industries? Mm. Tons of other industries are permitted to fail every year and some you know, have exorbitant prices and we let them go out of control. What is unique about agriculture? And... This is where Kelly and I start to disagree. This is where the fun, (laughs) let's get ready to rumble. For the rest of the episode, I think we'll be taking turns arguing our side. As a reminder, I think subsidies are amazing, which they are. And I think they can go to hell. (laughs) So two of the big reasons that we want to start with for why agriculture is subsidized and other industries aren't would be scale and necessity. and. A couple of other industries that are subsidized that I think are analogous would be the energy industry and the transportation industry. And I think there's parallels that can be drawn between all three of these, uh, agriculture, energy, and transportation. So on the scale idea, similar to the size of the energy industry and the size of the transportation industry, in the United States, agriculture and food makes up about 5% of the U.S. economy and employs 11% of workers. Farming specifically contributes 1% of the country's GDP and employs 1.3% of workers. So just in terms of scale, we've heard the term probably before, this is too big to fail. I think definitely agriculture meets that standard. These numbers include 2.1 million farms in the United States, 97% of which are family-owned. And on those farms, the most heavily subsidized crops are corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, and rice, which is important because grains provide 80% of the world's caloric needs, and they can be affordably stored and affordably shipped. So if we're going to subsidize anything, I think it's reasonable to think that we should be subsidizing 80% of the calories that the world eats. Or maybe... 80% of the calories that we eat are comprised of these things, including that delicious plate of cotton I had for breakfast. (laughs) Maybe our caloric needs are met by these things because they're subsidized, perhaps. I think we've chosen these things because they are staples of most people's diet, depending on what part of the world you're in. One of these things, with the exception of cotton, I suppose you're right. (laughs) One of these things is the the foundation of your diet, particularly for people uh, of lower incomes. Well, with all that information, additional statistics to be mindful of are that the top 10% of farms in the United States receive 78% of the subsidies, which sounds similar to other income inequality issues we've had in this country. 
There's also a major racial component too, as post-slavery, many Black Americans were driven out of land ownership and disenfranchised from the agricultural industry. And now only half of a percent of farmland in the United States is Black operated. Taking all of that information in conjunction with with what Josh is saying about the scale of the industry, there's a really big disproportionate number of farms that are receiving the subsidies, and there's a disproportionate number of people of specific demographics who are receiving these subsidies as well. So it is perpetuating inequalities, both financial and racial, in many cases when you're looking at just the raw numbers here. But I think there's more to food subsidies than that, because in the United States, a lot of farm subsidies bills also include food stamp funding. And this ensures that urban members of Congress support these food subsidy bills. And the majority of the foods that are on programs like WIC are subsidized foods. So while it might seem as though the money is going to benefit these wealthy farmers, there's definitely benefits to everybody in society and particularly people who rely on food stamps and welfare programs to feed their families. In addition, in the European Union, 3% of agricultural subsidies have to go to young farmers and there's tests for who is a quote, active farmer. So if your point is that this is implemented poorly in the United States, I suppose my counter is, yeah, most things are, but that doesn't necessarily mean that farm subsidies are bad in and of themselves. No, it doesn't mean that they necessarily are, but we can't argue the effectiveness of a tool without looking at how the tool is utilized. And if it's utilized poorly, that speaks to the tool itself in some cases. And I think that's the case with subsidies. And while we're discussing how this tool is utilized, one of the things that's unique about the way farm subsidies are implemented in the United States is that there are counter-cyclical payments per the USDA. Quote, the Farm Bill added counter-cyclical payments, which provides support counter to the cycle of market prices as part of a safety net in the event of low crop prices. Counter-cyclical payments for a commodity are only issued if the effective price for a commodity is below the target price for the commodity. (laughs) What does that mean? This means that certain agricultural products are effectively insulated from the normal capitalist cycles of supply and demand, which we've already talked about, such as how the consumption of meat is falling due to available plant-based alternatives, and the market price would fall if left to its own devices. I, I mean, I'm not sure how you see this as an argument for your side. This seems like an effective implementation of a policy that when the agricultural industry is under attack, whether it's an economic downturn or a drought, for example, something that farmers have to deal with that other industries don't, that's when subsidies step in. And when they're not susceptible to these sorts of attacks, they're left alone and we don't need to subsidize them. This, this all seems positive to me. We'll take it to its logical conclusion. The demand for meat is trending down no matter how you look at it, no matter what value placement you have of your own meat favoring. I know you eat burgers. I know and, you eat burgers. And I just went to Costco yesterday and bought a bunch of bacon. Okay. So you're, you're helping keep the meat industry afloat. <laughs> I'm but subsidizing. Look, look at how it's trending though. If the meat industry continues to experience falling demand in perpetuity, the meat alternatives are getting pretty good out there. What is 
this going to look like in the future? Are they going to continually artificially prop up the meat industry when demand is continually dropping? At what point does it just bottom out and they don't support the meat industry anymore? First of all, I take exception to your idea that there are good alternatives because I've tasted them and I don't think they're great. But second of all, like we talked about in the introduction, it's not as though meat can just consistently lower in relationship to the demand. There comes a point where the demand for meat gets too low and then the price drops, making it effectively unprofitable to produce anymore. And in that case, we drop immediately to zero meat. It's not a gradual decline like you seem to be suggesting, but it's a sharp drop off. And while a lot of people still rely on the meat industry or want to include meat as part of their diet, it's important that we protect against that drop off. Why? Bacon. <laughs> this doesn't make sense to me because eventually if demand is so low that not enough people are buying meat to even justify the subsidy for it, but meat is still being produced. I'm going to talk about this more later. You're seeing the needless breeding and killing of animals because of the quotas that are set forth in the subsidy system that don't reflect the actual market conditions. It's an artificial prop. Okay. If we want to make this a vegan debate, that's different. And I think you will later, but as far oh, yeah. as the, as far as the supply debate goes, this is what I'm saying. It doesn't necessarily go from 80% demand means then we have 80% production and then 75% demand means we have 75% production. There comes a point where when the demand drops, it's no longer profitable. So we might have 70% demand, but when that's under the profit margins that are necessary, we now have 0% production because these ranches or farms, whoever can no longer stay in business. And so you're leaving 70% of people who want to consume this out in the cold with your, I can't believe it's not beef burgers or whatever they're called. All I have to say to that is good. <laughs> okay. So speaking of food supply, let's move um, away from scale and the economic bits and into our second argument here, which was the necessity of the industry. And I, I don't think that it's going to be very hard for me to suggest that the food industry is necessary. This, this isn't like other businesses where we can say under free market systems, if they can't survive on their own, just let them fail, right? This isn't GameStop or AMC or Best Buy, right? When we are protecting farms, we are protecting the nation's food supply. And in the previous point, if you have specific demographics of people that you want to protect, I think protecting the food supply is helping those very groups of people. This is helping the most marginalized in society to ensure that food is affordable. In theory, right? But look at how we're doing it. The way that it's being executed is ensuring that farmers stay employed and the farmers who are employed preserving the food supply are getting a disproportionate amount of income relative to what they're actually doing, what food prices actually look like, and they're making far above the median U.S. income as a result. They typically make about $80,000 per year. And if basically a quarter of farm profits are subsidized, then we're basically, as taxpayers, paying out of our pockets to make sure that they stay well above the median income, which currently in the United States is about $31,000 per year. Right. But I think you're looking at just at the money that's going directly to people. So certainly the farmers are receiving 
more money directly than the average consumer is. But that doesn't mean that everybody's not receiving financial assistance here, because when the food prices are kept down, everybody benefits. And just because there is one person, the producer of the food products, who is receiving money into their pocket, doesn't mean that other people aren't being protected from pulling extra money out of their own pockets. Wouldn't it make more sense to have that money go directly towards making food cheaper without also making farmers richer? I don't, I don't, I don't see what the problem with making somebody rich is if it also benefits everybody else. I also think that it's important to note that farmers and ranchers live so much on the margin that one bad growing season could wipe out an entire crop or farm or industry. You mentioned 80000 a year, which is higher than the average. But for most people with a job in a different industry, a drought isn't going to cause for their IT job to disappear and then go without an income for a year. Whereas in the agricultural industry, that is a very real and very common happening. And subsidies help protect them against that. Because once a farmer goes out of business, again, that's food that's being disappeared from our grocery store shelves. Thinking about what actually contributes to maybe like a climate event that wipes out a crop or growing season, I think a big portion of that has to do with how agriculture is set up as an industry in the United States so that things are grown in places they would not normally occur. We kind of work against the environment when we're growing crops like rice in California with like how much water that requires. Perhaps if subsidies were altered so that the types of crops were grown more compatibly with the kinds of environments in which they are grown. And that meant that farmers could weather seasonal shifts a lot better, then I might have less of an objection to it. Take, for instance, rice itself, which we're talking about as a subsidized crop. If it's more profitable for a farmer to grow rice in a place that doesn't make sense to grow rice because of subsidies, and they could be growing something that took up more compatible resources in those areas, like broccoli or something like that, then the system is kind of working against the intended use of making farming sustainable. It's just making people flood the market with rice that they grew in a flooded rice paddy. This is tied back specifically to the incentive system that is brought forth by the subsidies because, as we've already mentioned, grains such as rice and others are the most heavily subsidized crops, which means that there's no incentive to do anything other than grow grain, even if there's no real need to grow grain in those areas. I mean, for every one farmer that might be growing the not quite most efficient crop for their land, you can't deny that there are also other farmers that no matter what they're growing, when California had a drought and California had fires, it doesn't matter what you're growing. You're going to be impacted by these natural phenomena. And these are only getting worse with climate change. And climate change also economically affects non-farmers. People have less purchasing power because of these acts of nature. So that could be directly to industries like fishing or directly to people who, because of rising pollution levels, experience health concerns or hurricanes destroying their home. The point is, all of these have economic impacts on people, which are exacerbated if you allow the price of the food that they have to eat to go up. So protecting farmers, specifically due to changing weather, also helps protect everybody who are right now victims of our climate changing. 
It's interesting that you're talking about how subsidies are there to help people who are experiencing hardship, considering that even in a normal situation, a normal year when people are not experiencing major issues with the climate or a natural disaster, about 12% of American households are food insecure, which is kind of bananas taken in conjunction with how heavily food is subsidized. You would think that food could get to people if it's such a high valued thing that we're spending so much taxpayer money on it. For instance, milk is a major, as a vegan, it hurts me to say this, it's a major, <laughs> major nutritional food that can really help a lot of people with mm-hmm. the calcium, the protein, the vitamin D. It's fortified in a lot of cases, all of those things. But about 45 million gallons of milk were wasted in 2019. That could have gotten to a lot of people who otherwise are experiencing financial hardship and lack access to food. I think it's important to acknowledge how subsidies lead to overproduction of food that ends up getting thrown away instead of being directed to people who are food insecure. A lot of times farmers are basically paid to throw food away or not even produce the food in the first place. But because they want to stabilize prices in the market, they say, don't flood the market with the milk, flood your drains with the milk. And they literally pour the milk down the drain to keep prices more stable. It's often illegal to get the milk from these farms to people who are food insecure in a way that would be more of like a government provided aid program. It's often illegal to donate it to food banks just full stop, either because it's not pasteurized or the best buy date, which is usually very conservative. It has passed, even though the milk is otherwise still edible and good and not going to hurt anybody. And then there's a logistics issue with farmers not having refrigerated trucks to get massive amounts of milk to people who need it and all these other things that prohibit food insecure people from being fed. Okay. I'm not going to sit here and deny that that's a problem paying people to throw away food. It's hard to defend that, but I don't think that's inherent to food subsidies. And I also think that's unique to the U S system. So in Europe, you actually have the opposite policy where you're citing the United States where it's illegal to donate food, milk in your example, in Europe, in some countries, it's illegal to waste food. And this is part of the Agricultural Subsidies Acts, for example, the Common Agricultural Policy. In France, I don't really like to use France in general to support my side, but in this case, it makes sense. In 2016, France adopted a law in order to fight food waste that meant supermarkets were forbidden to destroy unsold food products and were instead compelled to donate them. So unsightly produce, I I feel like that's kind of harsh on the produce, like hurting its feelings. I think all produce is sightly. Anyway, unsightly produce gets sold directly in supermarkets in France at a 30% discount typically. People can get a discounted box of produce that would otherwise not be sold and pay as little as one euro for a haul of fruits and vegetables. So I, I don't really see, other than we're a super wasteful society, I don't really see why systems of like this can't be implemented in a U.S agricultural subsidy policy. That would address the oversupply, but we're not addressing the prohibition on growing specific things to keep the market price artificially high. That is keeping food out of the hands of people if you never grow it in the first place. But I think it's also important to look at how in the United States, the food supply that is available also dictates a lot of people's diets in this country. 
The direct subsidies on corn, soybeans, cotton, the cotton is not a food product, but wheat and rice are, <laughs> are all grains that have usually comp- complex and simple sugars and the way that they're produced in the food industry usually strips them of a lot of their nutritional values. So they are just the, the simple sugars that end up getting sold in the form of packaged foods. Right. But I, I don't think you can make this argument that the subsidies are dictating diet because like for that to work, you'd have to tell me that rice hasn't been the staple product of people's diets before capitalism was even invented. I think that that's a cart before a horse argument. I do think that the subsidies happened because these particular grains were staples of people's diets, not the other way around. That might be the case, but you're talking about different grains as different staples in different regions of the world. And you're talking about all of them becoming heavily subsidized in one country. So you're having rice for dinner with a sauce that might be sweetened with corn syrup. And then you might have breaded chicken strips that have wheat. And then you might be wearing a cotton shirt, incidentally. All of these things are not accidental, that there's a heavy concentration of all of these things on everybody's dinner plates when they are the most heavily subsidized and most affordable foods. I just don't think that if we weren't to subsidize and we were allowed the free market to, to take its course, I still think that the predominant food products would be wheat, rice, corn, et cetera. But if they had a more accurate market price, they might not be as heavily represented and other things that are not those typical greens might also get to edge in a little bit on the share of the market that they currently monopolize. Are you trying to suggest people would eat broccoli or cauliflower? Cause I don't buy it. <laughs> I love <laughs> cruciferous vegetables. True story. Oh, that's a big word. Uh-huh. True story. When I was I had foot surgery and my doctor, as I was coming out of anesthesia, told my mom that I had really good bones. And I was waking up and I said, it's because I eat cruciferous vegetables. And everyone was (laughs) big confused. All right. I know we're on different teams today, but that's kind of funny. Yeah. (laughs) There's another component to what happens when these foods are so heavily subsidized that does not just mean that they're on your plate for dinner. And that is that Some of these crops, specifically corn and soy in particular, also go to feed livestock. And when they're heavily subsidized, it means that it's cheaper to feed livestock, which indirectly subsidizes the meat industry into making sure that meat, eggs, dairy are also kept at a lower price overall, meaning they dominate American diets in a way that they might not otherwise if they had a more I don't know, favorable market price that reflected their actual cost to produce instead of their subsidized cost to produce. And that means that plant-based alternatives, which are not as heavily subsidized, don't get as much market share. And yes, I'm going to make it about veganism again. I don't buy most of your vegan arguments, but one of the vegan arguments it's hard to deny is that in general, veganism is better for the environment with the exception of some almonds would be one example, which we talked about in our vegan debate in an earlier episode. But in general, the environmental impacts are something that's important to consider. But I actually think that farm subsidies have the potential to help our environmental efforts. To move to the next argument here, I want to talk about the technology that's incentivized for farmers to, to develop when the industry is subsidized. Farming's a risky business. There is a disincentive to take further risks by attempting innovation. We already talked about the reliance that they have on economic fluctuation. We talked about 
the vulnerability that they have to acts of nature, droughts, fires, et cetera. And so what industry would want to, when they already have all that risk, take on further risk by trying to develop new technology or try new procedures and potentially those procedures fail and then they take a a hit to their profits. What farm subsidies do is they give the agriculture industry that safety net that allows for them the ability to modernize the industry. And one of the big benefits of that is they're able to modernize their methods to make them significantly more environmentally friendly. Again, I feel like I'm using the EU as all the good examples to respond to all your bad US examples. But again, in the European Union's most recent iteration of agricultural subsidy policy, there is literally a direct payment made to green technology. In 2023, 2024, the EU is going to be spending 20% of its subsidy payments directly on environmentally friendly schemes. And that raises to 25% of subsidies in 2025 through 2027. These agricultural subsidies actually give us a tool to help improve the environmental impact that the agricultural industry can have. I do think it's interesting that we're comparing the EU and the United States quite a bit. I think that it's important to note that as far as the European Union goes, there's a lot more, I don't know, homogeny in the type of climate we're looking at. It's not completely homogenous, but the United States is vastly different depending on the regions that you're in, which I think contribute to a lot of the issues that make it a less environmentally sustainable industry, even though the USDA has made efforts to try to become more sustainable, which I think is pretty funny because the USDA is in charge of the subsidies, which are causing a lot of the food waste. And they're also trying to reduce the food waste by 50% by the year 2030. I just feel like it's a little talking on both sides of the mouth, which is usually our job, right? (laughs) Not today. Today we're consistent. I am for (laughs) food subsidies. But there are reasons for food waste that I think are so inherent to the logistical issues of being the United States in and of itself that I don't know that they're going to be able to overcome them even if they were trying to adopt measures much more like the European Union. So some of the reasons that are present for why there is food waste, not just like dumping milk down the drains, which I already talked about, but there might be too much food to pick. Uh, The market value of the food that people usually would sell is too low to be worth picking or doing a second pass through the field to do a second harvest. The food might not meet specific cosmetic or uniformity standards, which we talked about with it's okay to buy ugly produce in France, but the United States is very shallow. You are an ugly mushroom. I will eat an ugly mushroom. I don't care. But a lot of people do. They want the things to stack uniformly in grocery stores. So all the plums have to be the same size, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of it gets sent to landfills because it doesn't meet, meet these standards or it's left to rot basically on the tree. And then, oh, Kelly is just on a tear with this veganism stuff. Millions more animals are raised and slaughtered every year than the market has demand for. And that's a massive carbon footprint. We're not even going to talk about the poor animals at this point, but the fact that how much waste goes into raising an animal and then slaughtering an animal and then disposing of a dead animal is a huge environmental toll. Huge. And like I said before, The way that livestock feed is largely comprised of these heavily subsidized major crops that we're talking about, 
means that it is cheap to feed animals and grow them for essentially no reason. All of it feeds back into itself. The subsidy system is a perpetual cause of a massive amount of environmental harm. But I don't think that any of those things would change in terms of demand for animal products, our our need for every plum to look the same, apparently. I don't think that any of those things change if subsidies go away. This is one of those examples where the best way forward is through, where if we give farmers this financial incentive and the financial safety net to feel as though they can innovate, that innovation is our best way of ensuring we find ways to implement our agricultural industry in as environmentally friendly a manner as possible. Don't you think there is a disincentive to innovate though, when farmers are getting bailed out for poor market conditions, which gives them an incentive to just stay the course and keep growing what they've always been growing, the same methods they've always been using? No, I I think there's a disincentive to innovate when you make 80 grand a year, but then one year there's a drought. So you lose all 80 grand and now you have no money to spend on newer and greener technology. I think that's the disincentive to innovate. And I think the subsidies fix that. I don't think it makes them innovate. I think it just makes them wait another year and try again with government money, keeping them afloat. Well, I don't think it makes you innovate. I don't innovate. (laughs) I I don't claim to innovate. (laughs) (laughs) Our listeners will have to decide whether they think subsidies promote innovation or not. Uh Let's move on to our next point of clash, which is the effect on developing economies. And I know that we said at the beginning here that we were going to be focusing on the subsidies that take place in the United States and the European Union, but that's not to say that subsidies in those regions do not have an impact on developing countries in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And this is going to shock a lot of people. Vegans do care about other human beings too. And they don't like it when (laughs) other human beings are disenfranchised as a result of capitalist actions or subsidized industries. As we've already talked about, one of the five most subsidized crops in the United States is cotton, which we don't typically eat for breakfast, even if I'm a vegan and maybe I did. Who's going to judge me? I mean, it tastes like half the stuff you eat anyway. You have no idea. I'm a really good cook. Anyway, cotton with the subsidized pricing as a result of the United States' system is so inexpensive internationally that it prices a lot of other countries out of the market entirely, which is really bad for a lot of them that don't have a lot of other industries to fall upon except for cotton production and textiles. Looking at that a little more closely with some statistics, because we always love facts and figures, in the early 2000s, American cotton subsidies cost Sub-Saharan Africa $302 million a year. It's a lot of money. Specifically, West Africa's Burkina Faso lost 1% of its GDP, and export earnings declined 12% due to competition from subsidized U.S. cotton. In Burkina Faso, 85% of the population, which is more than 2 million people, depends on cotton production, and over half of the population lives in poverty. The cost to produce a pound of cotton is one-third the cost in the United States, but farmers there cannot compete in the world markets against American cotton. In total, 10 million people in Central and West Africa depend directly on cotton production. You have to answer for this, Josh. 
<laughs> You're robbing <laughs> sub-Saharan Africa of a, of a profit. I know how debate works. I can answer for this. So cotton is a little bit unique, but I think if we look at the rest of the subsidized products that would fall into a similar category or would fall under similar criticism, one of the big problems in developing countries is agriculture being used as a cash crop rather than a food crop. If they're able to compete in an international market, they, they take things like wheat, they take things like rice, corn, et cetera, and they export food to other countries around the world, which is dangerous in nations that have food scarcity. It does two things. It consolidates wealth in the rich, the people who can own enough land to farm at this level. And at the same time that it's consolidating wealth in their hands, it's denying the neediest access to the most basic necessity of life. So I understand that food subsidies in in places like the European Union do stop Central African farmers from competing on an international market. But I would challenge the assertion that that's the best way for them to be using their agricultural industry and selling products as cash crops rather than food crops within their own nation. Okay. You're speaking in generalities though, when you're looking at cash crops, but specifically with cotton, there's an evident harm with how it's subsidized in the U S and the resulting loss of income for countries that are in way more dire straits financially than the United States is. Okay. So, I mean, there, there definitely is an impact for that one particular crop, but I don't think that that undermines the system as a whole. And I, I think if we have to choose between cotton and then the produce that people rely on to eat to survive, I would consider my products as more important. There's another important argument that we need to consider if we're going to be talking about the developing world. And that is the idea, if we're, if we're trying to maximize food production, is how efficient new technology can be. We were just talking about innovation and the types of innovation that subsidies allow for. We discussed green tech, but there's also just increased efficiency that can come from advancing technology in the agricultural industry. You can grow crops on land that you couldn't before. That same amount of land can yield more crops. You can develop crops that are weather resistant, for example. Various genetically modified seeds can grow in harsher conditions. And all of this technology is developed by richer nations, but then benefits poorer nations as, I know the term is going to make you laugh, but in this case, I think it's true. As it trickles down, more and more farmers in more and more places are able to benefit from the technology that wouldn't happen if we weren't subsidizing farmers in the developed world and giving them the freedom to pursue this kind of technology. Oh, so you're taking the pro-GMO side. Just because certain GMO corporations are a little bit shady doesn't change the fact that the technology is probably one of the things we're going to be relying on to avoid food scarcity in the future. I'm just kidding. I don't really care about GMOs. But I understand that the more this technology increases to provide efficiencies and the more food can be grown in places where food's not really meant to be grown, the more food that's probably going to end up getting wasted for all the reasons I talked about before. Joking about GMOs aside, looking at everything we've covered today, I think it's pretty evident where agricultural subsidies really fail in a lot of cases and make a lot of sense to just probably get rid of altogether. We talked about the scale of it and how it disenfranchises a lot of people and forces artificial market presence of things like meat that probably are not going to be as popular in the future. 
The food supply itself doesn't really address the issues of food insecurity and makes livestock a more profitable industry than it should. And the technology doesn't really add up when it comes to how much waste comes into the market. And there isn't really a clear link, I think, from Josh's side of this debate about how people are actually going to innovate. And finally, I think the real nail in the coffin for subsidies is the effect that the cotton pricing has on the global South. And I think it's pretty evident that I've won this debate. Okay, well, I think all of that is wrong. Surprise. (laughs) Another piece of feedback that we've gotten from some of our listeners, and we also just want to point this out to let you know that we are listening to what you're saying. And if you have something you want to say to us, you can do it on our Facebook and our Twitter at IndubitablyPod or our email at IndubitablyPodcast at gmail.com. But that aside, one of the pieces of feedback that we've been getting is, well, at the end of your episodes, how do you decide who wins? And it made me think, at least, I was like, how do we decide who wins? And I guess the answer is we don't. In most of the episodes, we kind of leave it up to our listeners. That said, we're going to give it a shot this time. Throughout this entire episode, we've been pretty staunch on the sides that we're supporting here. And usually we're a little more fair, a little more nuanced, but we've been pretty sticking to our guns about this whole thing. One of the reasons I think that we had been using a format where you and I are both floating back and forth between both sides is because we we legitimately want on this show to be reasonable and find the best argument. And sometimes when we're just being confrontational, that doesn't necessarily happen. So maybe in these types of episodes in particular, it's extra important that we provide our own adjudications at the end. Which is what we're going to do now. And uh, this might surprise a few people that we're a little more nuanced about this topic than we may have appeared in the first part of this episode. Hopefully it doesn't just surprise anybody. I don't know. I was really convincing with my argumentation, I feel. <laughs> you feel. So t- take this with a grain of salt, though, too, because it is uh, hard, as anybody who has debated, sometimes once the debate's over, it's hard to judge yourself. But as far as I'm concerned, I think that farm subsidies are potentially a good idea, not as good as I have attempted to make them appear throughout the episode, because I think that, A, they've been taken way too far, in large part because of the agricultural lobby, which we didn't really talk about, and B, just an inefficient and disorganized system of implementation. Europe is doing a much better job than the US with stipulations for who is eligible to insure against abuse, as well as incorporating guarantees for advancement of environmentally friendly technology. I I think largely, though, your opinion on subsidies is going to be tied to your opinion of economic globalization and specifically protectionism, which is a topic we will do an episode on at some point. Without a doubt, subsidies in the developed world are locking developing countries out of the market and denying them a means of progressing economically. I don't particularly buy my own cash crop versus food crop argument, (laughs) although it is true in a couple of instances. And I certainly don't buy my trickle-down economics argument as much as I might have made it appear. Overall, I think that subsidies are a system that have their use now, but I think that the US and EU should be looking to probably phase them out, not continue to artificially promote them. 
which as sort of a side note is a the same criticism, but even more so applies to energy subsidies like coal. My turn. <laughs> but I think I won. Okay, sure. Whatever you say. I do think that there is a purpose for agricultural subsidies. And I think that the way that they're being utilized can be improved upon. So it should come as no surprise that I think that people should have affordable access to food. Even meat? A lot of people have told me, I'm a cool vegan. I don't get like super in your face with the, I think you should try blah, blah, blah. And I am going to be horrible to you because you've chosen blah, blah, blah. So yes, if people determine that meat is the right choice for them, they should have affordable access to it. It does have nutritional value. And to say that people shouldn't eat meat when it's something that's like culturally important to them or something that they've determined to be important for their nutrition would be like really paternalistic and inappropriate of me. Fine. You got me to admit it. People (laughs) can eat meat. I win the debate just because of that. Stop. Okay. But that's not what we're really talking about right now. We're talking about subsidies. I think the failures of the U.S. system are multiple. I think the first failure is that the amount of food that gets wasted as a direct result of being produced because it's a subsidized crop is a really big problem considering how many people are food insecure. There should be a way if there is all of this extra food for that food to get to people who need it. And that's a logistical issue that is stemming from the the production caused by subsidies, but the logistical solution is probably not a subsidy solution. There are ways to get farmers refrigerated trucks. There are ways to get overproduced rice to people who are hungry. We can make that happen. We could be a lot more like Europe. But I think the big problem I have with subsidies is that it is perpetuating a myth that the United States is a capitalist society when it really isn't. This is a socialist program to provide government money to prop up a market so that things don't get too expensive or too cheap. I think we just need to own up to that. I think we need to admit that this country relies heavily on socialist principles in order to maintain this illusion of capitalism and that people think that they're paying like the market price, quote unquote, for grains and meat and things like that, when they're paying a price that is artificially set because of a subsidy system. And if we get more people to acknowledge that they're engaging with socialism because of subsidies, (laughs) then we get people to accept socialism into their hearts in a way they might not have before. And then we can become a lot more like Northern Europe. (laughs) Oh my God. All right. Well, so that's our debate. (laughs) And that's our take post-debate. Let us know what you thought. We'd like to hear who you thought win because Kelly and I are very competitive with each other and each of us likes to hear that we beat the other one. Let us know what you thought of the format if you'd like us to mix this in more often. I think I have more fun this way. (laughs) And all of that said, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.